Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is in the air. This is happening at the speed of sound. Thanks for listening. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, over here on the bottom left side of America. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're well. Uh, everything's good here. I feel good. I feel strong. I feel uh, limber. And I figured I would start today by reading some tweets. So let's do that. I will read some tweets that I wrote. And uh, just to make things a bit more interesting, I figured I would read these tweets uh, from my account at Brad Listy while accompanied by the soothing sounds of She's Like the Wind, the uh, wildly popular 1987 power ballad from the late, great Patrick Swayze. Does that sound good? Would you enjoy that? Uh, here we go. What if countries played practical jokes on one another, i.e. declaring war on some country and then being like, just kidding?
remembering that time in college when, while heavily under the influence, I strongly recommended the movie Nell to a friend. Just told myself to doubt every single thought that ever occurs in my head, then said to myself, including this one. Seems like more hardcore Christians should have Jesus Christ face and neck tattoos. Come on, you Christian pussies, show the man some love. The phrase, whip it out, seems insane. Try to visualize this. It will trouble you. Feel like Poets and Writers magazine would, quote, blow up if it published a swimsuit edition. Just said the word taco repeatedly, silently, to myself unable to believe that it was real, then said it aloud once, quietly, and grinned. Okay, uh, my guest today is Michael Robbins, the notable uh, American poet, a young poet, whose work has appeared in a great many publications, including Harper's Poetry Magazine, uh, the Boston Review, and the New Yorker Magazine. And here... Uh, I should mention that The New Yorker published one of Michael's poems. Uh, It's called Alien vs. Predator. It's probably his most well-known work. And it also happens to be the name of his critically acclaimed poetry collection. Uh, And so in addition to being in the actual print version of The New Yorker magazine, uh, the poem was also made available online. And it went on to become, uh, and I quote, the most viral poem in the history of the Internet. That's according to Christian Lorenzen. Uh, of the Times Literary Supplement. So uh, you should read the poem. I'll let you uh, go out there and find it. Uh, You should buy Michael's book and read it there. That would be ideal. Um, So for my money, this is the best kind of poetry, the stuff that Michael writes. It's surprising. It's intelligent. It's funny. It's subversive. It is challenging. It is relatable. Uh, It's a lot of different things and often all at once. And I figure... Uh, Maybe I could read briefly one of Michael's poems, and and apologies to him, uh, because I know I'm probably going to butcher this, but I want to give you guys at least some idea uh, of the nature of his work. So this is a poem that I just pulled off of his website. It was written in conjunction with the second inauguration, uh, the second inaugural of President Obama, and the poem is called, To the Drone Vaguely Realizing Eastward. To the drone vaguely realizing eastward, uh, and it goes like this. This is a poem for President Drone. It was written by a camel. Can I borrow your phone? This is for President Mark Hamill. Newtown sounds a red alert. Mark Hamill asks, Is Ernie burnt? Every camel's a first person shooter. The prez's fez is haute couture. It seems strange that he should be offended. The same orders are given by him, paging Pakistan and Yemen, calling all the drone-dead children. The camel can't come to the phone. This is for the drone-in-chief. Mumbai used to be Bombay. The Bombay opens with a queef. 
All right. Uh, so that's a poem by Michael Robbins. His book, once again, is called Alien versus Predator. Alien versus Predator. It was published by Penguin. Here he is, folks, Mr. Michael Robbins. This is the two of us talking at length. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, I'm in Chicago on the north side. I'm uh, actually looking out the window of my apartment. does not have the best view, but there's an alley behind it, and there's a squirrel that is, I was just watching before you even asked me that, What uh, the squirrel run through the snow and uh, it's sort of kicking up snow ahead and behind of it. And it's it's cute. My cat hasn't spotted it yet, but sometimes she'll jump up on the window and make a weird chirping noise at the squirrels. <laughs> And uh, you're back in Chicago after a stay in, in uh, Mississippi. Is that correct? Yeah, back on the academic job market, All right. the chain gang. How's that going? Well, I don't know. Let's let's uh, let's not jinx anything. <laughs> right. Um, well, I want you know. I got to say, like, uh, po- when it comes to talking about poetry, I'm a little intimidated uh, talking to you because. It feels like something that's difficult. There's no, there's no need for that. Believe me. Okay, <laughs> but it doesn't. It feel like. I mean, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but it feels fraught. It feels like a difficult thing to talk about. Um, I don't know. Do, do, do we have to talk about poetry? I don't even like poetry that much. You don't. No. <laughs> but you. I mean, you. You do. You. You write it. You review it. I mean, you obviously are, are heavily engaged with it. But I find that. Um, I don't know, it just feels slippery and I feel like there can be, it's very easy to fall into kind of like rote conversations about it. And, uh, here's a question specifically with regard to your work that I wonder if you get very tired of hearing, um, you know, your poetry engages aggressively with pop culture or with disposable culture or whatever you like to call it. Um, do you get sick? Yeah. Of people, do you get sick of people asking you about that? Yeah. This kid, I, I had this guy, a very, very kind person, um, interviewed me for The Believer for their Tumblr recently. And 
the question started out about Ghostface, and and then uh, it, the published interview is not it's about nothing but religion. Because uh, I was like, you know, I just don't I just don't want to talk about Ghostface anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it's you know, it's I understand why people are interested in that facet of the poetry, but it also feels as if uh, they're sliding a lot of more important stuff, you know. Well, I think- and also, there's just so much you can say about it. Like, how how many times can I talk about like um, why I put Jay Z and Wordsworth in the same poem? <laughs> so yeah, I get I get sick of it. Okay, I mean, well, this is the thing though, is that I think that so much of the deeper understanding of poetry and of uh, the history of poetics, and you know, I think people don't have that, and so I think when pe and I think people get excited when they can find a line in, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's like, Oh, I understand. Sure. I understand what Best Buy is. I understand what Jay Z is. I understand who Ghostface is. And so it gives people a way in, but, um, that obviously oversimplifies it. You know, if it were that simple to get people engaged with poems or excited about poetry, um, then all we would need to do is just stack up, you know, popular culture references and, you know, <laughs> it doesn't quite work that yeah. way. Like, what do you, I don't know. Well, but but see, that's that's. I think the problem is the is the expectation that there's some kind of you know uh, way in that you have to be trained for, and you better just stay on the safe side and talk about what you know, because I don't think that poetry poses, at least my poetry poses a terrific difficulty to someone who's real willing to sit down and read it. I mean. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be like, ha, you don't even know what a spondy is. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it, it, there's a, there's a weird sort of, um, proleptic defensiveness on the part of people about poetry where they're like, well, I know that I don't know anything about poetry, but, and I'm always like, well, I don't know anything about stuff too. You know, we can talk about it. I don't, I don't know what you know, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was like uh, reading the wasteland in college or something, but people are, are so apologetic about their lack of knowledge of poetry. And I just don't think they need to be. Well, it can seem, I mean, I think like, I mean, for somebody like me who reads probably more, I mean, I, I think I definitely read more poetry than the average person, but certainly not as much as you. Uh, and certainly is not as much as some people, you know, I, I can feel a genuine frustration with the, uh, difficulty of some poetry that seems to be difficult for the sake of being difficult, even if that's not the case. Yeah. I just, I can, al I always appreciate it when there is a, a directness and an accessibility that is matched with um, real depth. You know, I mean, uh, do you find yourself trying to um, address that in your work? Like, do you care about accessibility? I don't know. I haven't given it much thought. I mean, I didn't start putting in, uh, you know, I don't, I didn't start putting in popular culture cause I wanted it to be accessible. And why did you put it in? Oh, just cause that's, that's, you know, you write, uh, it's, it's just part of the conversation I have with myself. It's part of like where I'm, I'm located as a human being. And, uh, and it's, you know, I've thought about it a lot since I started getting attention and getting, you know, more, uh, quote unquote famous, not that, you know, no poet is actually famous, <laughs> right? but people keep using that as shorthand. 
but I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I just love popular culture and, and some of the things that my poems were trying to do fit with the rhythms and the, um, uh, fit with the rhythms and the affect of popular culture. Well, um, and I mean, I've read in, uh, you know, in prepping for this, there's a, I'm sure, I'm sure there's like a deeper reason that I could articulate on another day, but you know, I don't even feel like it. The popular culture is there. So well, that's let me, all. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll feed you some of your own words from past interviews back to you. And then maybe you can, Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe you can comment on that and then we can move on to other things. But you know, I've read interviews with you where you've said that you don't like to talk about what your poetry is about, which is understandable just because it's tedious and you know, it's like a, it's like, uh, I don't know, the magician giving away his trick or whatever. I, I sort of understand that, uh, disinclination, uh, in another interview, uh, you said, quote, my poetry is partly about how everything is for sale. It seems astonishing <laughs> that, we, that we accept this as normal. And that, that to me gets to the, gets to the heart of it pretty well, right? Yes, but you got to understand, I'm just making this stuff up. Like people are asking me things <laughs> and I'm just like, yes, everything's for sale. That's exactly what my poetry is about. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> and you know, when people, I, I never gave an interview before 2009 and no one sits you down and tells you how to give an interview. So, uh, I wasn't, I, you know, I, I'm, I have felt free to just make shit up and not be, um, not count myself obligated to in any way endorse it, <laughs> any of the stuff I say. Right. That well, sounds good to me right now, but you know who knows if it's true. Right, 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 right. So let's talk then about your uh, about your career. You know, as a poet, or your, your you know your life as a poet and the the work that you've done as a writer. Like you said, until two thousand and nine, no one had ever interviewed you. So it seems like that was really the year that things kind of broke for you. Like, what happened to you before that? Let's talk a little bit about you know your history. Well, yeah, there, I mean, <laughs> there was, uh, there's B N Y and a N Y before and after the New Yorker, <clears throat> Christian, uh, Lawrenson, who's at the London review of books, just very kindly said that the, my poem alien versus predator, which appeared in the New Yorker in 2009 was the most viral poem in the history of the internet. Which you know is kind of like saying the 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 most ferocious puppy or something. <laughs> uh, like I don't know how many how many kids are are tweeting uh, links to poems, but it really did change everything in a really strange way. I mean, I people knew about my my poem. I didn't have a book out, you know, and I didn't I didn't really have a manuscript together until probably a year later. And it was weird. The Village Voice wanted to interview me. Uh, the music critic Jessica Hopper wanted to interview me. Um, you know, my, my I was in grad school at the University of Chicago at the time, and their publications wanted to interview me. And I just was not – I don't know. I mean, I know it's a big deal to get published in The New Yorker and everything, but something about that poem just sparked a lot of interest, and it was both gratifying and uh, – just kind of weird you know i kept expecting it to die down and then the book came out and it just got just got more and more uh attention and then it died down for a while and now you know it was just in the sunday book review they reviewed it in new york times grill marcus wrote about it in the believer i just don't 
I, I didn't expect anything like this. So it's, it's all been kind of sudden and I'm no doubt foot in my mouth a, a lot of times since people began to actually, you know, at least feign interest in what I have to say about anything. Right. Well, and okay. So let's, let's talk about the New Yorker. First of all, how did it happen? Did you just submit to the slush pile? Yeah, but I had, but I had been in touch with Paul Muldoon before he became the New Yorker's poetry editor. He was a, um, he was one of the subjects of my dissertation. I wrote a scholarly essay on him that was published in an academic journal, and no one re- read that, as far as I know. He probably and uh, I, I think I I might have sent it to him. He was very kind you know i was just this grad student writing to him when he's at princeton and i he's a a very great poet and one of my favorite poets and his poetry is is obscure in certain ways and i had a question about uh this word of his that he used called dialogue not called dialogue the word is dialogue d-e-e-l-a-w-g which turns out to be hiberno english and then he offered an explanation of or a definition of it that made no sense to me, but I didn't want to keep bothering him. But so I heard that uh, I had heard in a probably apocryphal story that he had sent his poems when he was young to Seamus Heaney with a note saying, what's wrong with these? And that Heaney had responded with a note saying nothing, which probably wasn't true. But I, I didn't ask him about it because I didn't really want to know because it's a nice story. And I was considerably older than he was when he supposedly sent these poems. But I, you know, I thought, what the hell? I'm going to ask him if he'll look at my poems. And he wrote a really nice note back, saying that he found the poems smart. And then, some months later, he got a job. He got this job, or maybe it was even more than a year later. He got uh, the job at the New Yorker, and I thought, well, you know, I haven't submitted to the New Yorker in years, but I might as well now. So I did just submit it to the flesh pile, but I you know, included a a little note about, you know, dear Paul, it was great to hear from you so that the, the various elves that work for the New Yorker would maybe make sure he saw the things. And, uh, I don't think, yeah, he didn't take anything from that batch, but the next batch he, he, he published, he took alien versus predator. And the next batch after that, he took, uh, my poem lust for life. And then three years went by and he didn't take anything that I sent him. I probably submitted 20 times, but he just recently took a third poem. Wow. Congratulations. That's a bit, I'm interested in this because I have a good friend out here, uh, Ben Laurie, who's actually been on this show. And uh, he's a great show. Uh-huh. I've heard that name. He's, yeah, he's, he, well, he published in The New Yorker. Maybe you read his story there. But he uh, he's a great That's short story it. writer. And he's got, um, he's got a very uh, unique – I was going to say strange, but that might be not the right word. It's a, He's just got a unique um, – uh, sensibility that's sort of unto his, you know, unto himself. And uh, he published, uh, or he sent a story in via his agent, and it got kind of picked up off the slush pile and published in the New Yorker. And and, and similarly, it changed a lot of things for him in terms of his, um, you know, ability to get a book out and the ability to get people to pay attention. And oh, yeah. a lot of good things happen. So I'm I'm interested in the cultural currency of the New Yorker, like in an age where they keep saying that traditional media, you know, is on is waning. Uh, at least in the in the literary realm, you know, getting published in the New Yorker still is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it's a it's a very it's probably the most prestigious journal you could get your poem published in. 
in English on the planet. Uh, so to have that be my first big publication was, you know, I, I, I it, it might seem like I just kind of took a lot of shortcuts, but of course I had published here and there in smaller journals for years and toiled in obscurity and all that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cultural cachet attached to it. And so, for that reason, it's, it, you know, it's seen by certain uh, sniping factions of the, you know, uh, the, the establishment and the man and all that. But really the world of poetry is so completely um, ineffectual that I can't imagine that I'm selling out that much by getting published in the New Yorker. Right, right. And and by the way, who what poet would would turn that opportunity down? Let's be honest. Come on. Well, that's what I'd like to know. Whenever anyone's nice about this, <laughs> it's like yeah, if, if if some you know basically. Although actually, I should say that I believe the poet Joshua Clover, whom I know slightly over the internet, uh, had a poem solicited from, uh, or they solicited a poem from him. And as, as I recall, he actually turned them down. He did. He has a great line where he says, uh, "I got the," he says, I, "I got the money issue of the New Yorker." yesterday what exactly were all the other issues about <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness so uh you said you know like tangibly that uh, i'm not that principled <laughs> neither am i uh so but you mentioned you know like the the in the aftermath of this publication certain things started happening village voice reached out to you your university press you know wanted to talk to you or whatever and 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 hear your thoughts like what about the uh, on the publishing side of things? Did you have requests for poems from other journals? Did you have um, agents reaching out to you, or did you have an agent before you went to the New Yorker? Like, what what happened on that front? No, I still don't have an agent. People keep asking me that. Virginia Heffernan asked me that the other day. I don't I don't think poets have agents, or if they do, they're not telling me. I uh, I have a publicist at Penguin now, but I just did this all on my own. I was really lucky because yeah, a lot of people did solicit poems from me after that and but i was really lucky in that i didn't have to submit the journal the, the manuscript anywhere um one of penguin's poets robert wrigley who was teaching my new york the two new yorker poems to his class was kind enough to write to uh, my now editor at penguin paul slovak who is his editor as well and suggest that he look at my manuscript so i got a email from 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 penguin asking to look for, at the thing so that was you know just i mean usually you kind of try to convince them to look at your, your manuscript so i just felt like it was um you know i just felt very very gratified and very uh i was very amazed <laughs> that they were interested and then i didn't i didn't think they'd take it because it's you know the subject matter is somewhat salacious at times but they liked it so here we are wow i mean it's extremely hard to get a book of poetry published by a major house that's that's like the the ultimate like threading of the needle right i was just glad i didn't have to have to enter any of these goddamn contests where you pay like twenty dollars you know yeah and then they give it to like uh the the, the guy that their daughter is dating they were, oh they, yeah right exactly that just seems to me uh you know that those contests seem to me like a a scam, a very transparent scam, but is that too cynical? I don't know. I think it depends on the contest. I think uh, a lot of them are not, a lot of them are very above board and they have, you know, they have rules, but I, but a friend of mine, a very good friend who now has a, a book out on a very good press had an experience where 
he had entered a contest. I'm not going to mention any names, obviously, but he had entered a contest, and later he was having lunch with the uh, the guy who the judge of that contest that year. Um, and they met, they had met through different circumstances, not through the contest. And the judge said to my friend, you know, I sure wish you had entered such and such contest because I would have picked your, your book in a heartbeat having heard your poems. And my friend just looked at him and he said, yeah, I, I did enter that contest. <laughs> and what had happened is it is that the judge doesn't read every submission. What happened? They, they hire, they have, people i've done this for the poetry foundation they have people who winnow the, the the submissions down to like 20 or so that the judge picks one of one of and he hadn't made it through that initial um round of filtering so you know it's just a lot it's, it's a very difficult thing to win a poetry contest yeah um so i want to shift gears a little bit and i want to just know more about uh i guess your your bio like where are you from originally uh, I was born in Kansas, but I we moved to Colorado when I was uh, five. I think I was about five. So where? In no, I was about six, I guess. Where in Colorado? Grew up in. I grew up outside Colorado Springs in a little town called Woodland Park, and uh, then and then moved to Colorado Springs. And I went to college in Boulder. I did too. I went to college and, in Boulder uh, too. When were you there? Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there is really the operative <laughs> relative uh, term. Right. What, what, what years I, were I didn't do too hot at college. Yeah, not, not <laughs> I was there from 1990, 1991 to 1995, I guess. Yeah, so we overlapped. I was there from 93 to 97. So at some point, I might have passed oh, okay. on the hill or something. <laughs> and then I just dropped out of the academy for a long time. I had not done well in college, and I had... You know, and I, I wanted to be a poet. I didn't want to be some, you know, I didn't like apply to get my MFA at Iowa or something. So I just really just the rest of my 20s were this kind of disastrous, impoverished, uh, hand-to-mouth existence. Yeah. Well, I mean, so when you say you didn't do well at college, like, did you did you major in uh, English or, I mean, were you... Yeah, I majored in English and I... I got A's in my poetry workshops, and I, I studied with Lorna de Cervantes. My aesthetic was, you know, really heavily different than what it is now. I wouldn't want anyone to read any of those poems. Good Lord. What do you, were they but just derivative? I or? just, they were very derivative, and they were very sentimental and, and very heavily uh, influenced by by some of the Spanish writing, uh, Spanish language surrealists, uh, like Neruda and Lorca and Vallejo. And they just all sounded like they were written in imitation of the deep image poets in the seventies. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, but everybody, st you know, everybody starts. But I was young, you know, I was, right. yeah, everyone, you know, I was, but I have students now, you know, I teach creative writing who are just fabulous from the get go. And I, you know, probably they won't keep many of their poems, but they seem to be a lot more advanced than I was at that age. Just a, well, just more in command of their own thing. Yeah, just just sharper about about the scene and about what they want to do and what they want their place to be in it. Uh, I just wasn't a good student for a long time, not because I wasn't smart and capable, but because I was just lazy as hell. 
I, I missed a lot of class at Boulder. Yeah, I did too. I don't, I mean, I just fucked around so much <laughs> as an undergrad. It was, it was sort of, yeah. uh, I, you know, it's an easy thing to look back on and just be like, Jesus, what a waste. You know, <laughs> like I wish I would have taken oh, yeah. better. But, I mean, if you looked at me, any of my professors, I think would be, would have been just stunned to, if, if you had told them that in, you know, 15 years, I would have a PhD from one of the top programs in the country. <laughs> Because, oh God, I, just, I I shudder to think about myself back then. Yeah, I mean, I majored in uh, film studies, and, and you know, was in and out. Of oh, class. really? Did you? Did, you would have been there at the same time Brackage was there, then, yeah. Yeah, Brackage was there. Phil Solomon was, you know, my instructor, and you know, there's yep. like it's a great department. I, you know, I, I of course was such an out of touch um, student that like I showed up just thinking like I wanted to make narrative feature films, and of course, like the Boulder Film Department is all Brackage and experimental and. You know, looking back on it, I'm glad right. I, I had that education because it was unorthodox and it made me look at film and art from a different perspective than, um, you know, something that you might get at like USC film school where it's totally commercial driven. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't really uh, engaged. And I remember seeing Phil, uh, he had he had a uh, a screening of some of his films at down at the uh, Disney hall downtown in LA. And I went down to say hello. And at this point I had published a book and I remember him looking at me and I was my wife now, but my then girlfriend was with me and like right in front of her. He's like, God, you were such a fuck up in college. I can't believe you know, like, he literally said that to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, it a nice, it was well, a, yeah. yeah, it was a nice moment. You know? <laughs> um, so well, anyway. that's when you should be a fuck up if you're going to be one. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember a friend of mine took a class with Brackage and, and he was, they were screening a silent film and, and Brackage's uh, graduate assistant had left the, the audio on. So it, it was just like an electronic hiss was coming through the speakers. Just, you know, not, not loud or anything, but you could definitely hear the, the sort of sound of an open channel that wasn't broadcasting anything. And my friend was sitting next to Brackage in the front row and, and Brackage kept fidgeting, and finally he got up and said, I, I can't abide this asthma of what isn't, and went back and turned off the sound. <laughs> I mean, you know, that guy, that, that there's a guy that like I, and I think I've even talked about this before on this show, but uh, it's just, he was someone I wish I would have appreciated better when I had access to him. I look back on that and I kick myself, you know, like he was right there, and I didn't fully appreciate it or get as much out of it as I could have. Cause he was an amazing artist. You know, he had a, you know, very niche, very personal, um, you know, obviously very personal, weird filmmaking style, but he found a way to do it. You know, he found a home for it. And I don't know. I just, I wish I would have done a better job of taking advantage of that. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about, uh, Ed Dorn, who was at Chicago when I was there for a while and I never did anything with him didn't really know who he was even. I just knew he was a poet that people talked about a lot, but I sure should have taken advantage of it. And Ginsburg was in Boulder when I was there. Yeah. He was at Europa, but I, I could have gone down the the street to talk to him, you know? Right. Exactly. Uh, I remember actually, I remember, <laughs> I actually remember wandering Boulder, uh, on, you know, under the influence of God knows what with a friend we were talking about, like, where's Alan right now? Like we should go find him, you know? Like, and we never, right. of course we never did. We just like wound up at like circle K, like buying Skittles or something, but like, you know, exactly. Uh, um, yeah. Luke Sante has an essay about Ginsburg and he talks about how he lived below him in an apartment in New York 
for a while, and the only interaction they ever had is when Alan would come down and knock on his door and ask him to turn the music down. That was it. Yeah. Oh, man. So, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about, because I want to get to, I'm trying to sort of build up, because uh, in reading about you, you seem to have struggled for a long time, as most writers do, um, find to find your particular way of doing it. And I think you mentioned uh, a creative breakthrough that you had at the age of 35. So build yeah. up, build up to that. I mean, you, you alluded earlier to like the poetry that you were writing as an undergraduate that was really derivative and sentimental the way that, you know, nearly all apprentice writing is, but like, how did you, how did you build and like, what, like how bad did you struggle in your twenties? And like, what was your, what was your mind state during that period? Would you ever like endure severe depression? Did you ever think like, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, like, how did it go? Oh, yeah. I used to, uh, I don't know, I was such a narcissistic twit. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not now, but uh, <laughs> if you know me and you think I'm a narcissistic twit, which is likely, you, you, all I have to say is, you know, go back, go back 15 years and, <laughs> and uh, you, you probably have to give me a lot of credit because, I was just, oh, it was just awful. And I, I would I would look at the journals of contemporary poetry and just seethe with envy of these people who had their their uh, poems in the journals that I wanted to be in. And I would submit, and I would get rejected, and I would submit, and I would get rejected. And really, I just you know I wasn't thinking enough about what poetry was, what it what I wanted to do with it, and what my place in it could be. I was writing through my 20s after I got over the Spanish surrealism, a sort of derivative kind of post-language poetry fragmenty thing. I was into John Yao for a while. Uh, it, it was just all very, like, competent um, apprentice work in a different style. I don't know. I just, uh, it really, it really was in my thirties when I started, finally started getting some criticism published. I started out reviewing books for the Chicago review where I was a, a contributing editor for a while. And then I, uh, from there I got a few reviews in Boston review and started reviewing for poetry magazine and I was good at it. And I thought, well, this, I guess, you know, if I can't be a poet, I'll be a critic. And I had kind of given up. I remember saying to my dad not long before the before Paul took Alien vs. Predator that, you know, how weird it was to be in Poetry Magazine. I had reviewed some, some books uh, for them after having read it for so long and sort of wished and dreamed of being, having my name in it. And I said, I mean, I wish it had been for a poem instead of a review, but still, this is this is pretty good. And you know, since then, of course, I've had poems and poetry, but I had I, I'd stopped really believing it was going to happen. And that kind of, you know, finally, when I admitted that to myself in my early 30s, it just freed me up. I was like, whoa, I'm not going to be a famous poet. Okay, well, am I going to keep writing poetry? Yeah, I like writing poetry. And for the first time, I could write poems where I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to figure out an angle and I just want, I could just do what I wanted. And it turns out that that was what I 
I needed was to just forget about, um, you know, forget about uh, trying to be what people were looking for and just, just, just having, having fun writing shit that I, that, that, that I liked that I felt was an extension of, of who I am or who I'm trying not to be or, you know, who I, I, I want to pretend to be at the moment. And, uh, it became much easier to write poems. So, okay. So talk about, it turns, and it turns out that people like them. Okay. So it, yeah, it's funny. It's funny how that works, you know, when you kind of like let go of all that, yeah. <laughs> all of the, uh, you know, like fame hopes and pretenses. And then you just start saying what really is important to you and is really deeply personal to you. It seems like that all, all almost always resonates more. Well, that's why I tell my students. I say, I know that you look at at me or whoever you you know you see as having what you want, and you think, God, I want to be in this magazine, and I want to get a book published, and I want this, and I want that, and that's natural, and that's what that's the ambition that keeps you going. But that's not what you write poetry from. If that's what you're writing poetry from, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, go ahead and want it, and and be ambitious, and be jealous and be arrogant because that's, that keeps you going. But when you're sitting down to write, you got to let that shit go. It's just going to eat you. And so what do you write poetry from? Do you know what I'm saying? Like when it's at its best and when it works for you in the way that it's been working lately, like, can you articulate that? Um, sorry, I'm just writing a brief response to someone we can, uh, but also the the question is hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, but it's like it's 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 hard, but it's like you know, it's it's definitely one that I would love to know the answer to. I maybe there isn't an answer that's that's broad. You know, maybe it's just individual. But I'm I'm you know maybe another way to concretize it would be to say, you know, you talk about this breakthrough that you had where you had this kind of letting go uh, period, and then you just started working on what I don't know really interested you. Can you point to an you know a specific poem where you felt it turn, and can you describe the writing of it and and how you kind of knew? Like you know, did you sense it, and what was yeah. what was happening on the page that made you feel good? Well, I think the first poem that really clicked for me in that way is poems in the book called Self Titled, which I wrote in two thousand and seven. And uh, could have been late two thousand six that I started it, and then I finished it in two thousand seven. And uh, that was an outgrowth of, of having, uh, you know, had that breakthrough where I just gave up trying to, to please other people with my poetry. And coincidentally, very uh, fortunate coincidence for me, I started reading Frederick Seidel at that time. And Seidel is just the most... Um, bracing refreshing poet because he just he's just impossible you know he's a he 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 doesn't care he doesn't seem to care uh about about any taste at all his his poetry is aesthetically formally thematically completely um it's it's a kind of fuck you to taste you know to all uh to whatever you might like dislike about him. Uh, he's, he's very wealthy and 
writes poems about being very wealthy and about about you know uh, Wait, buying. How, how is he? How is he very wealthy? wealthy? He was the son of a coal magnate uh, in St. Louis. He he didn't you know he didn't earn any of his money. It's all inherited, and he's never worked. He's never had a job. Uh, I don't know how much money he has left because now he's really old and he's been living off this inheritance his whole life. But I assume he had good good uh, financial advisors. And you know, as someone who's very sympathetic to uh, a sort of leftist critique of capitalism, uh, I find a perverse pleasure, you know, in, in, in having this, just this guy who just strips the pretense of being a humanitarian and, and, you know, now all of our millionaires are supposed to be, you know, very, uh, conscious of giving back and being, um, you know, good good citizens and Seidel just isn't having any of it he, he writes poems about buying $200,000 motorcycles <laughs> you know, there's something you know it's just it's just nice it's like if, if you're going to be that rich I don't want to read your your you know whining uh, apology for being rich you know uh, <laughs> you know that I actually kind of hate you and, and want to steal everything you have and give it to the poor and keep a lot of it for myself so why not just revel in it? And he also writes very frankly about sex, and um, and he he has come over the years to write a very sort of sing-songy, almost amateurish, Ogden Nashy kind of rhyming poetry. And when I first read him, I just thought, what the fuck is this? This is this is amazing, you know. I, this guy is is publishing stuff that a lot of people just look at and say, oh, great, you know, fetishizing uh, capitalism and the guy can't even write a decent rhyme. And Seidel's a very smart guy about poetry, and he knows that that's the reaction that he's getting. And it just it just struck me as refreshing after so many, uh, you know, after reading so many poems that, that wear their... Um, that wear their leftist sympathies on their on their hearts. That's not a mixing metaphors, or that that revel in in uh, demonstrating, you know, the materiality of the signifier and undermining the grammatical hierarchies that 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 grip us in ideology. Which is, you know, I mean, I, I like some of that stuff, and and I, I think there's probably something to those critiques, but it's just such a bandwagon. And, and what every time I read a new poet who's doing something like that, I just think, Oh good. You, you've written the poem like a hundred other people. Uh, and it, it doesn't give me anything. And this guy's over here writing shit that you think is terrible. And it's, and it's, it's, um, fun and it's brilliant and it's liberating, you know, to say, okay, Frederick Seidel. Okay, so, so, you know, there's a lot of Seidel's influence in my work. And when I started writing self-titled, the first thing I wrote was somehow I sidle, I kickstart. And that sidle was not a, an accidental pun. Sure. It was my a little homage to his, um, you know, to the liberating effect he had on me. Okay. Well, let's talk about, like, I, I want to zero in on the word fun. 
just because that's not a word that's Funny. Not, it's not associated with poetry very often. You know, the, the average person out there doesn't, you know, if you're doing word association, you say the word poetry, fun, <laughs> fun is not going to immediately spring to mind. But that's one of the things that I respond right. to in, in your work. It sounds like that's what you respond to in the work of Seidel. Um, and you know, it's, it feels... well, there are other things. Yeah, I know, but, it, but yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, it's so noticeable because I don't feel it explicitly. Like maybe the word play, you know, there's a playfulness and a play, humor yeah. Yeah. and it feels like you actually had fun writing them. And I don't always get that sense when I'm reading not only poetry, but uh, you know, other things as well. And that comes through and then it makes it fun to read them. Uh, it's also, you know, it's not like it's it's a, a nursery rhyme, but it's understandable. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't run away from the reader in the way that some poetry seems to. And I don't know. I I don't know. Do do you think of that when you sit down and like, what do you want from the act of writing poetry? Like, uh, I guess like a a way of putting it would be like when you sit down to write. Are you thinking about communicating with another person or with other people, or are you thinking about communicating with yourself primarily? Oh, it's a it's a uh, a hybrid of responses. I mean, I've got I've got people whom I write um, with, like we we trade poems and 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 mark up each other's poems and help each other, kind of. Um, you know, workshop, informal workshop among friends. And I certainly have them in mind when I'm writing. Like sometimes I'll be writing a poem and I'll think, oh, Anthony's going to die when he reads this line. Uh, Anthony Madrid is a good friend of mine who's a great poet. And he, he and I sort of share our poems when they're in their first drafts with each other and help bring them to some kind of completion. But also I'm just looking for something that strikes me as smart and interesting and uh, fresh, um, whether it's a rhythm or a rhyme or an image or a uh, uh, just a, a, a phrase or an insight, you know, I want to I want to read a poem. I want to write a poem that when I read it, I can think, yeah, if I hadn't written this, I think I would like it all right. Um, and you know, it is fun. It's I mean, it's not that much fun to write poetry, <laughs> but it's fun when you get it right. Yeah. It's fun, know, it's, fun uh, to, it's fun to have, a, have written. Right. It's fun at the end when, you, when you're like, yes, finished. That's it. Cool. It kind of sucks when you're walking around your apartment smoking cigarettes and trying to think of what rhymes with DeLorean or something. <laughs> but that's what I was doing before you called. Oh, really? And Yeah. And it's not... I don't know. I don't, I, I can't, I can't sit around and think about, well, I better write another poem that, you know, that people are going to like and that the New Yorker is going to want to publish or that whatever. Um, I got, I got this, you know, I, I arrived at this aesthetic honestly. And, uh, if I keep writing in it, it's because that's what I'm, what I like to do. Some of my newer poems are not quite as, you know, um, they might be a little more melancholy and introspective. Uh, not that many of them. A lot of them are, uh, I'm sort of pushing, um, impulses that were in alien versus predator, uh, to a sort of higher degree or, or maybe I'm just sustaining the same degree, but I don't know. I can see myself getting to the point where my aesthetic 
uh, I find it kind of exhausting or rote. You know, a lot of poets just keep writing their standard poem over and over and over again, especially as they age. And it, it just becomes really predictable and the poems are never as good as the ones that they had written when, when the aesthetic was new. But, you know, I'm just working on my second book right now and I'm not worrying about whether it's the same kind of style, the same kind of thing. So, okay. So, but let's talk about that process because now that you've had some success and you've gotten some exposure and, you know, as far as the world of poetry goes, uh, you've, you've broken out, you know, getting published in the New Yorker is about as big as it gets. So how do you manage creative expectations? How do you mentally clear out the space that you need to clear out in order to write in the honest way that we've been talking about? You know, is there anything that you that you do like to prepare or is there anything like, is there any process that you can talk about or is it just simply a matter of, I don't know, just finding a way to, to drop all the static and get to work, you know? Yeah, well, I was, when I, after the book came out, I had some, or actually after it was in pre-publication, I had some trouble starting again because I, the poems I had been writing were being added to the manuscript as I wrote them. And then, you know, my editor was like, okay, the thing's going into publication. We can't add anything else. So I knew that from then on, whatever I wrote would end up in my second book if it were to be published at all. And at first I just started, I had a little trouble because I was like, okay, well, well, I've done this. I got to go in a different direction. I have to cultivate a new style. I've always admired poets who can remake their style. Uh, but it just wasn't happening. And, um, it was only when I, when I just said, all right, if this book is alien versus predator part two, whatever, I'm not, I can't worry about that. I just have to write poems that I, that, that I can write at this time. And, uh, ever since I stopped giving a shit about, you know, whether my style was maturing, uh, I've been able to write, um, pretty regularly. So, and so how I've does got it, about how does 20 poems in the new. How does it work for you? You start with a phrase. Do you start with an image? Do you know? Is there a consistency? Oh, it's different each time. You know, it's different each time. Sometimes it will be a phrase that just comes to me, and I build a poem around it. Or sometimes I'll it'll be a rhythm. You know, um, sometimes I'll be reading something someone else wrote, and it'll spark an association that will that I can run with. It's, it's different every time. Uh, you know, it could just be, it could be something as banal as, as seeing, uh, 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 an ad on the subway or, um, liking a line of poetry in a book and just riffing on that in my mind until I come up with something distinctive. Do you write every day? Oh, you know, it depends on what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't have like a. Lately, I've been reviewing so much that I I haven't been writing as much poetry as uh, spending as much time on poems as I want to. Um, and I I at least try to even if it's just jotting down a phrase or jotting down a thought, you know, I, I do do that just about every day. But as far as actually sitting down at the, at the computer and spending an hour or so trying to compose poetry. I don't do that every day. I try to do it every week at least. Yeah. And what about the influence of music? Well, like, I mean, I want to talk about the influence of music and, and I, I think I want to couple that with your willingness to engage, um, 
you know, with rhyme in ways that maybe, you know, quote unquote, serious poetry hasn't always, do you know what I'm saying? I think that rhyme somehow is associated with um, nursery rhymes or child poetry or some sort of dumbing down. And you, you go right at that and you well, embrace yeah. that. I mean, like talk about music and its influence um, and then talk about, you know, rhyming and how that works into your, um, you know, your poetry. Well, people don't, you know, it's strange. People, people talk about how the modernists sort of rebelled against rhyme and, 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 and free verse became regnant, but you know, the kind of rhyming I'm doing isn't regular and it's not as if you can't find rhymes in, um, you know, in John Berryman and, and in, uh, I don't know, some of, some of Frank O'Hara. I mean, rhyme is just a fundamental tool, technique, device of poetry. Poetry comes out of song. Um, and it's true that some of the writers against whom the romantics and the modernists were rebelling had become, you know, sort of enslaved by rhyme um, to the extent that they would cram their lines with ridiculous inversions, syntactical inversions, in order to get the rhyme to come out right. There's a great book called The Stuffed Owl, an anthology of bad verse, which uh, will give you a flavor of what rhyme's really like when it's done poorly. <laughs> but I, I don't know, you know, I think that rhyme is, and not just rhyme, but, but the, uh, but the, the resonant interplay of syllables, you know, um, you know, when Jay-Z says, uh, what does he say? Um, the rest of y'all know where I'm lyrically at. Can't none of y'all mirror me back. Yeah. Hearing me rap is like hearing G rap in his prime. I'm young H O raps, grateful dead about to take over the world. Now break bread. That's, that's not just rhyme, you know, um, lyrically at mirror me back. Those aren't exactly rhymes. They're just, he's playing with the sound of those words. Uh, that's what I'm interested in. And the way that he says prime and then starts the next line with I'm, which is a, if you, if it were lineated, would be an internal rhyme, you know, but he kind of pauses to let it sink in prime I'm, and then he stops a little bit. Uh, sound to me is, is the major thing that separates poetry from prose. Not that prose can't, have sonic, um, you know, not the prose can't register sonically. I mean, it should, but sound is as important as sense to me. And I'm just, you know, it's, it's one of the things I love about, uh, about poetry is that it can, it can make words musical. And I don't see any reason I should, uh, think that rhyme is, reactionary or retrograde or whatever. Well, but no, see, the, the thing is, though, but the thing is, though, is that there are, I think there is, uh, at least uh, in some corners of the, the literary world, this notion that uh, music, you know, isn't poetry. You know, Bob Dylan is a musician. He's not a poet. And, um, you know, Jay-Z is a rapper. He's a hip-hop artist. He's not an actual poet. And, you know, there's always that kind of delineation, that separation between the world of poetry and high literature and the world of, you know, popular music. And you don't seem to agree there. 
No, I mean, I agree that there are distinctions. I mean, Bob Dylan, to be honest, I don't care whether Bob Dylan is a poet or not. I don't, I don't see what is at stake in the question. We can say that he's not a poet, that he writes really good song lyrics, and that, that doesn't change anything as far as I'm concerned. Um, there is a distinction between what John Ashbery does and what, you know, um, John Bon Jovi does, <laughs> but <laughs> if, if, uh, but as far as my own poetry is concerned, if I have materials to draw on from both traditions, I don't see any reason that I should limit myself to the so-called poetic. Well, yeah, no, that's and a, poetry has been yeah. musical for for its entire existence, you know. Well, right, and like that's the um, thing about it is that I feel like there's more honesty in your approach. Uh, because I don't understand how it would even be possible for somebody our age to be writing poetry seriously and to be engaging with this seriously and to not factor in the influence of music. Uh, because any poet who's being honest has got to say that the song lyrics that they grew up singing as children were not a huge factor in them falling in love with language and wanting to write poetry in the first place. Do you know what I'm saying? It just seems so integral. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, common. Certainly, I was obsessed with words because of song lyrics before I ever read a poem, uh, and I don't find much anymore in in poets my age or younger or slightly older the sort of condescension to popular music that you would you would have found as recently as James Wright writing in the eighties, you know. Um, no, and, and someone like Paul Muldoon is very forthright about the influence of uh, song lyrics and, and, and the rhythms of popular music on his, uh, on his poetry. And, and someone on the experimental side, so-called, like Graham Faust, will incorporate snatches of song lyrics in his music. Ansel Berrigan has this great line where he plays on... Um, I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said there was suckers where he says something like, uh, I opened and read it. It said, um, I owed $57,000 in defaulted student loans, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember the exact line. And so much for listening to this. I'm sorry, but it's great. You know, I mean, it, it's become a, um, a trope in poetry and contemporary poetry. Uh, I mean, Ashbery wrote a, a poem, I think it was in a wave, I might be wrong, uh, where it just says, you know, this is a while ago, that the poem should be read to the to the tune of um, Reunited by, oh God, I'm going to forget who sung Reunited. Like Reunited, you know that, Reunited uh, and it feels so good? And it feels so good, exactly. Okay, hang on, I can Google this. I always thought that was great. I wanna, I got, I got, it's it's not be Peaches and Herb. Yeah, it is peaches is and herb. It? it is peaches and herb. It is peaches and herb. Yeah, peaches All right. and herb. Reunited. Good call. My mind is working. <laughs> I was going to say peaches and herb, but then I thought, no, that just it just sounds like the kind of thing peaches and herb would have done. But yep, there you go. <laughs> um, so I, I want to also, before I let you go, I want to ask you about poetry in the internet because this is something that, for a long time, I've felt pretty strongly about. I don't have, um, obviously, as deep of working understanding of of poetry broadly as you do, but um, one aspect of it that I feel, uh, you know, strongly about is its place 
uh, and the strength of uh, possibility afforded by the internet. Like it seems perfectly wed in ways that maybe long form fiction, whether it's a, a short story or, or even longer, it doesn't necessarily mesh as well. Like, do you feel that the internet is good for you as a poet and for poetry broadly, or do you think that it somehow diminishes it? Uh, my friend Virginia is going to hate me for saying this, but I, I actually am, have tried very hard not to have any opinion about the internet and it's, uh, and its impact on literature to its benefit or detriment, just because I don't think we have enough perspective to decide, you know, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, um, I know that it's easier to, to distribute poetry than it used to be. And that, you know, your audience could be more far flung and wider. Um, but but I just have no idea. I don't, if the, let me put it to you this way. If there's going to be – like it feels to me like there's like – it feels like the 19th century was Walt Whitman. He was like the famous poet. It feels like Ginsburg might have – you know, these big bearded – I think you might need a big bushy beard. It seems like a prerequisite. But I have a pretty big bushy beard. Do you? Good, good, good. So It's, it, it's not that bushy really. <laughs> but it just – the point I guess I want to make is that it seems like if you had to imagine some figure like that emerging from our culture now and really – getting inside of people's heads in a, in a big way, you know, with, I guess the word big in quotes, um, it would have to be a poet who was born or who is deeply rooted on the internet. Maybe. Well, I just don't think, I don't think that, that we can have a figure like Whitman or Ginsburg anymore, I guess. I think that, um, the conditions of production have changed so much of literature and that, the cultural context for poetry is so different that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I could be entirely wrong, but my sense of it is that poetry is really just sort of, uh, a niche art and has, will never again have any kind of larger cultural impact, uh, which is, you know, I mean, I don't care. (laughs) This is how art works. Um, I'm really pessimistic about uh, literature, I guess. Um, How so? Like, meaning what? Like, you just think, like, it's just continuing to grow more and more peripheral? Yeah, it makes me sound like a crank, like like an old guy, like Harold Bloom or Philip Roth. But <laughs> but I just, you know, and I, and I don't like that I sound like that. But I really do think that people, at least in our culture, I, I can't speak to other cultures, Um I, tr- I try sometimes, but you know, it's it's uh, th- they speak different words. I think that I, I mean, I just I want to I want to totally qualify this because I don't know. I mean, people have been saying this since Plato, right? But it seems to me, and I have a lot of contact with younger people because I'm a teacher. That people just aren't reading. They're not they're not growing up reading the way that they were, um, the way that the way that even my generation did. Uh, I don't know what to, I don't, I don't know if that's just an anecdotal impression, but I really think that the experience of deep reading is, is, you know, endangered uh, because you have to cultivate it in childhood. And if you don't, you'll never, ever get it. It starts in childhood or it, or it doesn't take traction. 
doesn't gain traction. You can't teach an 18 year old how to read literature, you know? Yeah. I tried that. So, <laughs> and I mean, I, and it just I, seems I, to me I, that I, I just was, I should elaborate a little bit, but I mean, I was teaching comp. No, yeah, please. You know, I was teaching comp at a community oh, college, God. community college level and, you know, handing out like ask the dust or something to a bunch of 18 year olds. And I guarantee you that for a lot of them, right. it was the first, uh, you know, serious novel that they'd read. Most of them had, most of them, if they had read anything or if I asked them what they had read, said Harry Potter. I mean, that was basic. I mean, that yeah. was, it was, it was sort of like unnerving to me. Like that was like 70%, you know? And, and I think they just said that because it was the only book that came to mind or they would say Stephen King, you know, but it, it, just, right, it right. wasn't, it wasn't like the list of books that you would think of being on syllabuses or in, as a part of a curriculum in a high school English class, you know, like the catchers and the rise. Right. And the, you know, those books just weren't a part of the conversation. Well, shit, we read the crying of lot 49 in my English class in high school. Uh, and you know, even as I say this, I, I realize. I mean, Randall Jarrell has an essay where he talks about a study published by, you know, some university that showed that 50% of Americans had not read a single book in the previous year. And that was in the 1950s. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe, maybe this is just how it always is. And I'm, I'm just stunned because, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it's all impressionistic, but, but just because it was bad in the fifties doesn't mean it's not worse today. It just feels more. So, fra- it feels more fragmented. It feels like there's more things competing for people's attention today. I think that's got to be a fair assessment. I mean, not that people weren't busy in the '50s, but it's just not quite the same in terms of sensory overload and fragmentation. Yeah, and I don't want to be a. I don't want to be like you know a techno determinist or anything, but it can't possibly be the case that the availability of of the internet and, and video games and texting do not have any impact whatsoever on reading. I mean, they just, they just must simply from a temporal point of view, there are only so many hours in the day. I know I, you know, would read more if I didn't have the internet. Yeah. Well, see, but this is the thing. This is the thing. This is my argument, or at least maybe like my pipe dream is that particularly with poetry, which can be consumed in a time frame, unless you're dealing with like some sort of a seriously long epic poem, but most poems can be consumed in a time frame that is um, uh, synchronous with the internet experience. And I have this, I guess I have this fantasy of some poet or some group of poets finding a way to speak to this generation and to deliver those poems, uh, which are poems of a very serious and deeply thoughtful nature onto people's phones. And I've even, I think I've even, uh, can recall like being, uh, like half drunk, you know, like out with a friend of mine who's a poet <laughs> and like trying to convince him that like at some point in the future, your laptop is going to come equipped with a little like hologram machine. And the laptop is going to spit like a, you know, it's going to, it's like a star Wars when uh, the little hologram of princess Leia, you know, sh- shoots out of R2D. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's going to be like a poet's going to like appear on your desk and like recite for you. And, you know, it felt really good at the time when I was saying it. But now that I'm articulating it to you, it makes me seem like I was high or something. But, you know, maybe there's a hope that. Well, it sounds creepy. (laughs) That too. But, you know, I I wouldn't want to be the hologram because people would be scared. (laughs) I I guess. But I don't know. I just think there's something to the idea that the medium is the message, right? There's something. I mean, you, you have to make it more sophisticated than that. 
But if a poem is like beamed onto your phone, I mean, does that is that the same experience as sitting down and reading a poem? I don't know. Uh, but at least it's there's reading. a certain level of yeah. But who cares? I mean, what's what's the I don't get what the goal is. If poetry reaches people, but why do we care about it reaching people if there's not going to be the level of cognitive commitment that poetry has always demanded? Yeah, you know. So I don't know the answer. There's like I, the bus, the poetry on the bus thing, where you have little poems on the buses. I always, I you know, I always wanted to just tear those things down when I saw them because reading a poem in the, in an advertisement space on a bus is not the same experience as sitting down with a book and reading a poem. It just isn't. I mean, I don't see, there's there's all this, this, there's always been, I suppose, this urge to bring poetry to the masses and to reach as many people as possible. But I think there's been less consideration of just what good we think the poetry is going to do them and why we're trying to reach so many people. And until we've decided that, it's you know all all you do is all you're doing is getting a lot of people to run their eyes over a series of words, which might be a waste of their time. I don't know. I'm I'm also an elitist, you know. I don't I don't know. Most people can do just fine without poetry, and as Frank O'Hara said, "bully for them." I uh, I don't know. It just everyone's trying to turn back the tide and bring us to a golden age where everyone reads poetry again and and they comment on it and it becomes part of their the intellectual fabric of their lives but a i'm not sure that there ever was such a time and b i'm not sure that that you could replicate that experience under contemporary conditions are you, or that you should try. Do you have an aversion to digital like Kindles and reading poetry? Like do you like do you always read in traditional, you know, bound print format? I have a I have a Kindle Fire and I and I read uh genre fiction and nonfiction on it and I think I have Weldex's latest novel on it. I could read I can read prose on it just fine. I I won't read poetry on it. Um I don't know. I mean that th- it could very well be that I don't have any good reason for not doing so, but I just I just don't do it. And so, I know that my book is on Kindle and it has sold a lot of, <laughs> you know, sold a lot of copies. There's only a single copy. It has, it has been downloaded a number of times, but I don't, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it looks like. I haven't wanted to look at it. So what about and what about book sales? I mean, I don't mean to uh, ask an you know an impolite question, but I'm curious when it comes to poetry, like and the kind of exposure that you've gotten. Like, have you been pleased with book sales in terms of how many copies have sold? Is it surprised? Oh, yeah, you? I've been as I've been as pleased as a poet can be, unless you're like Billy Collins, who probably makes forty grand a year off his book sales. But for a first book, it's just been astounding. It's it's uh, we've almost sold out the third printing. It was the best-selling book, a poetry book in the country for weeks, and uh, and yeah, I mean the sales have been way beyond what I I was thinking. If you know, I mean just to be a, a sort of well-known poet, you don't have to sell that many poems. You know, people just have to know. I mean, that many copies, you just have to have a sort of presence. But it has sold a lot of copies, and it's hardly as if Penguin is Penguin's print runs for a book of poetry are as extensive as for a novel or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have sold 
thousands of copies, which is very uh, fulfilling and you know nice to know that that many people have actually bought the thing and hopefully have read it. I just got my first royalty check uh, last year, and yeah. it was. Yeah, I, I guess it would be crass for me to say it was it was in the very very low four figures, which shocked the hell out of me. <laughs> wow! Well, congratulations. Did you frame it? Because I was like, well, hell, if, you know, if I make a hundred bucks off this book, that'd be great. Um, I did not frame it. No, I think that I. So what did I do with it? Oh, yes, I took it to the bank and cashed it. Good for you. So, or I, I might have deposited it. <laughs> so, uh, what is your goal? Like, what do you, when you look forward, do you have like some sort of vision of how things, how you would like for things to go for you? Do you have a career that you've sort of built in your mind that you're moving towards? Or is it more of a, you know, I'm just going to get through today kind of situation? Like, what is it? What does a career in poetry look like? I mean, you have to have an ambition. Obviously, if you've gotten to this point, you had ambitions to publish and to be, um, you know, to have your work read and responded to. But like, what do you, envision for yourself? How do you fit into this culture going forward? Oh, you know, I just want, I just want lots of girls hanging off my, my pecs <laughs> and maybe some gold, some like a, a little gold figurines or something. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, you can't make a living off poetry. You have to be a, usually you have to be a professor and that's what I would like to do is have a good, you know, have a, have an academic career and because it's uh, something I enjoy, I enjoy teaching and I, I think I'm pretty good at it and it's, you know, you get three months off in the summer uh, and I would like to just, you know, be a, a, um, I like I I, I want to be a successful poet. I want to be a well-known poet, and I am now. But that doesn't mean that I will be in you know three years. I would like to continue publishing books of poetry that uh, that people like to read. It's not a I don't have an especially ambitious goal. I mean that sounds ambitious if you're a young poet. But now that I've had the success I've had, I would like to continue having some success and have a steady job and you know. And then just chase. There we go. Just... I mean, I'm in early middle age, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I think you're well on your way, you know, for what it's worth. And uh, I certainly have enjoyed hearing from you. I'm, I'm sorry that I, I feel uh, – I, I wish that I had a deeper understanding of, you know, the history of poetry and could be more fluent and um, conversant and all of those things. So I appreciate you, you know, being patient with me and taking the time to talk. And uh, I certainly wish you all the best going forward. Well, it was great talking to you, and uh, you know, thanks for having me. Okay, there you have it. That is Michael Robbins. His book, once again, is called Alien vs. Predator. Go get it. It's available from Penguin. It's a terrific book. You can find him online. He has a Tumblr. Uh, the address is michaelrobbinspoet.tumblr.com. He's also on the Twitter, where his handle is Alien versus Robbins. And I should make, you know, I'm going to make a small correction. I don't even know if it's a correction, but when I referred earlier to Christian Lorenzen of the Times Literary Supplement, I'm not 100% certain that he's of the Times Literary Supplement. I believe he was quoted there. He could be of it. This is getting kind of technical, you know, it's getting into technicalities, but I just want to make sure that I'm communicating clearly with you. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Thanks to Patrick Swayze as well. 
Uh, don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. It is free. You can get it for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. Uh, it is, for my money, the best way to keep up with the show. Uh, it is effortless. It's free. Uh, but you can also get access to the back catalog, to the archives. Uh, that is uh, available for a nominal fee. It's like 2 bucks for a month's access. It's nothing. It's just $2. Just 2 uh, please remember that Andre Gide played the piano and that Idolo Calvino, is that how you pronounce that? Idolo Calvino died of a cerebral hemorrhage, hemorrhage, hemorrhage. Thanks again for listening. Back again on Sunday with another show. Do you like how I just kept repeating hemorrhage, just trying to own my mistake? I'm living in the moment. Uh, so I'll be back again on Sunday with another show, another author, another conversation. And uh, I have some good ones coming up, I think. So tell your friends. Please uh, evangelize on my behalf. Let's make this viral. Let's do that, shall we? Uh, I want to be a virus. Do you want to be a virus? Everybody in America is trying to be a virus. (laughs) 